For this episode of Tez Podagogy, my guest is Uta Frith, Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London and one of the world's leading researchers into autism. She is also President of the British Science Association. Uta, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Um, so you are probably, you probably know more about autism than most people in this country, if not the world, because you, you know, you've researched it for, I think you said since 1967, is it? Oh uh, yeah, since 1966. Even. 19, 1966. Uh, do you think That's in a long time ago? Yeah. yeah. Do you think in that time we've become a more autistic aware society? Do or do we know more about it? Are we more sympathetic towards it? Yes, I think you absolutely put the nail on the head. I mean, this is totally um, changed um, awareness of um, this condition, and. Um, Indeed, we have become more autism aware, and also it, it isn't just me anymore who is so fascinated yeah. by autism. I really was in 1966. I did my PhD uh, with autistic children because it it seemed to me much, much more fascinating than any other subject I could study. I, I was training in clinical psychology, and I was very interested in OCD. In fact, I had a chance to do a PhD on this topic, and I thought, oh, this is really what I find, want to find out about. But I had a chance to um, see some autistic children coming into the clinic, being assessed, and being so strange um, in the sense that they, they just defied every explanation. Mm. And from then on, I just got completely captured. But I also have to say that the children that were identified as autistic in those days are only a tiny subgroup of the children who are identified as autistic today. Then there was a very um, narrow kind of core idea um, which, you know, clung quite strongly to some sort of textbook examples. You can imagine Mm. if there is a new diagnosis, people are very, very strict in applying the labels and thinking they they capture something, have to explain something. And it only dawned on us all, clinicians, researchers and so on, uh, with time, maybe 10, 20 years or so, that um, there is a much wider spectrum than this sort of tiny little core of very classically autistic children. So in those days, the children I studied mostly had very, very little speech. Mm. Mostly they had um, very um, clear, quite severe intellectual retardation, which really limited the sort of things that you could expect them to do. But now we know that intellectual abilities, all of these things are really almost orthogonal to the actual autism. So you can have autism at all levels of ability. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I want to say it's still true that um, a large proportion have accompanying intellectual retardation. I really have to stress that because it seems to me that, you know, in our now autism-fascinated, autism-aware society, we love to see the the extraordinary ones, the most talented ones, the mm. ones that are just amazing in their abilities. And of course, we don't really see the others anymore. I think that's actually a great pity. 
um, they, they are sort of forgotten and, and people, um, you know, feel that now autism is something you could really be very proud of. It's really a very interesting condition and you can, well, you might not fit in so easily into society, into groups and so on, but, um, you know, the sort of general popular conception is that you might make up for this with all sorts of amazing abilities. The truth is that actually only the case in in few exceptional cases. Do you think that's something as a society we've shaped, uh, maybe we feared autism and we've shaped it into something that we think is acceptable and we, we sort of banish the rest to our to the back of our mind? Or do you think it's actually a, a knowledge problem that we don't know those that side of autism exists? So I'm, I'm interested in where the causation of that sort of yeah, splits come from. It's, it's an, an, an interesting suggestion you make there. There is certainly a, a cultural image of what autism is and that also shapes um, the way that people with autism present themselves, there's no doubt about it. But um, there's also a knowledge problem, and I think that's what I'm most interested in, that still at the moment, we are struggling to understand this um, enormous uh, variety uh, of individual differences. So um, perhaps you've seen that wonderful documentary on BBC Two just last week mm. with the um, zoologist and presenter Chris Packham. Mm. Um, now he is one of those absolutely exceptional people who was diagnosed with autism at age 40. Now that already makes you think, what happened to him before? Yeah. Um, it can't have been a very severe case of autism, you might think. I think that might be the case. I obviously don't want to pronounce on it as, as, as I have not got the data, I don't know him personally. I did like the program though very much. I thought he made an extraordinarily interesting case of how he personally overcame the difficulty that he had. And he uh, clearly was able to um, find a way around his special anxieties. And he made his obsession with um, living animals with, with you know with animals of all kinds into his major strength I mean mm. that's what he's known for he has obviously superb knowledge do you think that um that, that sort of narrative of um overcoming you know the, there's yeah. a there's a movement at the moment you know that you, you can manage send in whatever the send actually is but uh you know whatever the difficulties of special education is you can sort of manage yeah. that um, Obviously, that's not always the case. Not everybody yeah. can do that, I think. I think that, that is the sort of difficulty that one has to also grasp. None of this comes at uh, for free. You know, there is a cost. So I imagine for Chris Packham, for example, there's an, an enormous amount of energy needed, an enormous amount of motivation to keep going in the way he does so that mm -hmm. he does fit in as a, as a very charismatic presenter and can work with a team and can be, you know, happy with people he relates to. And thus, it doesn't necessarily come, um, you know, so as easily for him as it might for other people. But, you know, I don't know what the details of the case are. All I know is that when we talk about um, these exceptional cases, we, um, we, do, we do forget about the others. Mm -hmm. 
um, the others who are at, at, at the, an extreme where they live in a world that's incredibly limited and restricted. And we can't demand that they find this compensation. You know, this narrative is actually not really open to them. And the reason is, quite plainly, they suffer from a severe brain abnormality. Now, this is a very interesting thing about, you know, when you use the word abnormality, immediately, you know, people say, um, how, why, why do you call that an abnormality? It would not be much um, kinder and fairer to talk about um, differences, just individual differences. Well, this is what it looks like when you see the exceptional cases. They are just different, interestingly different, wonderfully different. But when you look at the other extreme, and, and they're not, they're not a, a tiny minority at all, um, you do get the impression that there's something very badly wrong. And that was also an interesting topic in this program, that um, there was an interesting discussion, but didn't go very deep, about what it means to intervene, to treat autism, to cure autism, even to use quite um, invasive procedures of um, learning, you know, learning-based um, methods, which really are taking up, you know, almost all the time of children and parents, and they produce some effects, actually very good effects in many cases, but, you know, it was sort of queried, should we really do this? Mm. Should we not let all these um, varieties flower, these differences of mind? Well, um, my experience is that um, <clears throat> there is, a, there is a, a difference between those people who have symptoms that can be overcome in some sense or even uh, enhance their uh, life and those that we can only describe as, as severe impairments. I guess that's where the spectrum becomes yeah, complicated well, for people. You know, when you're when you're talking about yeah. autism, you're talking about such a broad range. You just summed it up. Yeah, up and perfectly that, that there. may be the problem. It may be wrong to think of a spectrum. Maybe we should be more bold and think of different subcategories here. That's yeah. what some people suggest. But you know, that's another problematic thing. How do you define these things when you don't actually really know uh, what the best markers are? How we can measure the the, um, the symptoms that we think are pretty critical. In I guess that, that same difficulty array arises when you're looking at schooling and um, in terms of, you know, if you, if you make a grand pronouncement about autistic children should be always included in mainstream schools or all autistic children should be in special education schools yeah. where their needs can be catered for, you're dealing yeah, with such a broad range of, 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 of children that... Yeah, you, so you're de de you can't just answer uh, one way or the other mm. because basically both would be options that would be best for some children and, and worst for other children. And I guess, you know, this is an area that does very well in terms of readership. When we have advice about autism on our website, you know, teachers flock to it in, in, in big numbers. Does that, do you think, represent a curiosity about, you know, a, a, or a curiosity about the condition? Or do you think that is a fear about I have someone I don't know how to help. I mean, is it a mix of the two? It could well be 
me a mixture. I'm, I'm really delighted that the teachers are so interested because to me they are the absolute key people. Mm. Um, I think that education is really the only thing that we can do that really helps autistic children of, of all kinds, you know, with all kinds of difficulties. I think that teachers are craving more information and it's not so easy, you know, to get um, good information. You know, we have this problem with the internet, with the media and, and, and social media in general, that so much is presented and we can't quite distinguish what's, you know, um, hype and what we should take seriously. And so um, I'm, I'm very interested in, in having, having ways of responding to teachers' questions about this, to give them extra training and really inform them about uh, research that is sound and of you know, high quality. And of course, the same is, is true about parents. Parents seek frantically all sorts of answers have lots and lots of questions, not just about the causes, which are still unknown, or about, you know, the treatments, which are, well, still still unknown. There are some, um, obviously, uh, considered to be good practice, and one can recommend them, at least for some children, never for all children. So, I mean, yeah. is that a problem with, um, with with teachers looking for like the golden key, if you like? You know, will this help me understand my autistic student? Is that that key doesn't really exist, at least not in an evidence-backed way? Well, um, it, not really. But um, I have tremendous respect uh, for teachers who seem to quite intuitively um, find ways to deal with um, some problem children. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think they could also teach um, the scientists something because they clearly have, have ways of, um, of guiding a child in, in a very beneficial way so that they can, for example, relax, be less stressed and thereby release um, motivation to learn um, and to do things in, in, the, in the right way. And is it is there um, with, with autistic children in the mainstream system at least? I mean, there there tends to be a uh, an assumption that they will be socially um, reclusive uh, and uh, not like large groups. But I understand from the research around girls with autism that actually the opposite can absolutely, be true. Absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the things that really needs to be dismantled. Um, in <clears throat> it's one of those myths that, that linger around, or like the other myth that um, autistic um, people don't have empathy. Mm. Absolutely not true. I think it may be true for some, but um, not. It's not a, a, a necessary feature at all. And that the other thing is that some people think that perhaps autistic uh, children don't even feel emotions because they don't recognize emotions so well in others but again that's an absolute myth because teachers will tell you and parents will tell you that they have very very strong emotions mm. and it's in fact regulating them regulating these emotions and you know in themselves finding finding ways of of understanding them their own uh, emotions that these are the sort of things that they um they 
can do and they can have a big effect on the life of the children. Is there like um, a phenomenon of sort of passing as well? I was having a discussion with a, a lady uh, just a couple of weeks ago and she I, I know she won't mind me using this example. She, she was talking to me and she said, oh, by the way, I'm autistic. And I said, OK. And she said, would you have guessed? And I said, no. And she said, you would have guessed if I'd have, uh, if you'd have started talking about something that I, I wasn't interested in. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, really? What would you have done? And she said, I'd have walked away. And I yeah. said, oh, right. Is that? And then she said, I'm very good at passing. Yeah. But, but only in situations where I'm, I'm interested in the subject matter being talked about. And I'm thinking, well, I wonder how common that is in, in sort of teenage children, whether they can, they can part, I know it's a horrible phrase, but whether they can pass, you know, whether they can hide yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I know what you mean. Um, it, it, it's very, very uh, interesting to talk about um, this in terms of compensation. Yes, mm. compensation which is, is not trying to um, improve a very low level of the skill by bit by bit, by repetitive practice, but mm. it's actually doing something different instead, right? Yeah. So if you can engage with another person, if the topic is on something that really interests you, then you can be as normal as possible. That's the sort of sign of compensation. But if you can't do that, you can't compensate. So, you know, compensation is not something that you can do totally to order. Mm. Um, if that were the case, it wouldn't actually be compensation. But there's an interesting paper that's recently appeared by uh, my colleague Francesca Happe and her student uh, Lucy Ann Livingston, and it's all about conceptualizing what compensation means in autism. And they've come up with a wonderful um, distinction between shallow compensation and deep compensation. Okay. Now, the shallow compensation is when you get from your teacher rules on how to behave, what to do, what not to do, in very, very concrete terms and situations. A wonderful recipe, you know, which, which enables you to, for example, um, have a, a very, very good conversation with an autistic person. You never guess that they are autistic. But it's shallow compensation because on another day, at another time, or if you spend a whole day with that person, you will suddenly realize that they can't keep up that huge effort mm. that this kind of thing demands. Now, with the deep compensation, as far as I can see that the authors suggest in this paper, you have the possibility of really working out a solution to problems that other people, ordinary people, like us don't have to work on at all but they have to they have got some some heuristic space they have a way of hacking a particular problem mm. and um the point about this is that this can only be expected in people who have extra resources extra cognitive resources which i presume just mean high intelligence which includes, for example, being able to control yourself, being able to introspect, being able to plan ahead, you know, knowing from memory what works, what doesn't. The sort of huge general things that we consider to be typical of, a, of an intelligent person. If you have all that at your disposal, and you can only have that if you have a really good working brain and not um, a noticeable brain abnormality, then you can have that deep compensation. 
And that, you know, could be the case in people, for example, like this amazing uh, Chris Packham. Mm. And do you think, I mean, the, when I talk to, go to autistic uh, schools for autistic children or when I talk to Senkos, the terminology will change uh, <laughs> pretty much with every conversation I have, sometimes within the same school in terms of uh, how you refer to an autistic child, whether it's forefront in the conversation or whether it's, you know, if it, this needs-based assessment, should you even be using the tag of autism? And then, you know, some people don't like the, the word normal in those conversations. No, yeah, it's very, very tricky. Um, it, it is very interesting. I'm sure a cultural historian should really go and, and, and look at this because there have been many changes. For example, there was a time when you were really frowned upon if, if you used the word autistic individual or autistic child. Mm. You would only, you know, be, be okay if you said a child with autism mm. or an individual with autism. And um, even autism seems a little bit, you know, well, maybe you should say autism spectrum, which allows you a huge sort of umbrella of things or maybe just spectrum, or maybe just different. Yeah. You, know, you have that fantastic term, neurodiversity. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the one I hear quite a lot yeah, now as well. Yeah. That seems to be the term used is, most commonly. It is, yeah. it is, it is a, a huge attempt. I can really understand it of saying, you know, we must uh, uh, try not to... Um, we must do our best to remove the stigma and to really help these people to, to feel, you know, part of everybody part of us and and feel welcomed but it is it is very difficult um to to uphold this kind of sentiment um with um people who are not like chris packer mm. and so we we tend to generalize from a point of the sort of um, the curious incident of the dog at midnight case of autism or the Chris Packhams yeah. or the Rain Man type. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah, generalise yeah. from that point out, whereas what you're saying is, we, well, we can't yeah, generalise from that, that point There are a lot of people, a, a lot of people who are really autistic and they're really suffering, their parents are suffering, mm. and they seem to be really invisible and, and they would be more invisible the more we use the word neurodiversity, I think. That's interesting as well, isn't it? Because I guess in the in the special school sector, they they are visible in that, but the special school sector itself is so so undervalued, I guess, in in the general education yeah, conversation. That's such a pity. I do feel, I really feel that um, there should be some m much better appreciation of what these special education teachers are doing. I, I'm surprised, for example, that we don't have, you know, special prizes and awards for special education teachers who actually perform little miracles mm. and also to allow these teachers to get more skills and more training which is always necessary because you know research science progresses there's always an updating needed and it's so easy to to fall into the you know hype that some of the training programs um gave and i'm, I'm sure uh, teachers who want to do their best will you know, just like everybody else, will would not necessarily know um, whether whether something is based on sound principle, scientific principles, or not, on evidence. You know, that is the word, evidence-based teaching. I guess as well, like if 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 a teacher was to, you know, they knew they were going to have a child with autism in their class for the next year, 
What would your uh, approach be to that? Would it be to read around the research or is that a lot of that inaccessible? Would it be talking directly to the parents? Would it be um, talking yeah. to the child themselves, a mix of all three of those yeah, things? Yeah, I, th I think this is the problem. There ought to be, a, you know, a, a, a kind of catch-up, uh, a kind of training problem which, which combines hands-on experience um, and indeed reading about good research. There is actually a very good website um, that always um, gives good uh, comments and opinions about recent research. So rather than reading the research papers, which is a you know big ask mm. um, for the teacher, you know to, to have the time to do that, they don't have time. But to to go and um, and read the sort of digested materials, I think that is that has been incredibly helpful. I don't know if teachers are aware of this resource but they should be it's uh, called um spectrum spectrum news okay and do you think in the conversation schools have um i've spoken to quite a lot of parents of autistic children and they they talk of this struggle for acknowledgement and struggle for their children's rights to be sort of acknowledged um in, if you're a teacher and you're going to, you know, you want to get the, you know, you want to approach this child in the best way you possibly can, how can that parent relationship work best? I mean, you must have talked to plenty of parents in your time of, of, of autistic children. Is, you know, whether they're in special or mainstream, what role does the parent have? Are they the ones that know this child best? Are they, or can you get a little bit of, um, as a friend in, in the special school sector said, a little bit of um, assisted uh, disability sometimes in that? Well, it's, it's obviously the case that there are big differences. Mm. Um, but most parents I know have come across have been incredibly uh, informed and are incredibly helpful and actually appreciate a dialogue with the teacher. Mm. So this is when it works best. But then you do get cases where antagonism builds up. And that is always very, very unfortunate. But I do... I do think that it's the parents that the teachers could learn from a lot when it, when it is about individual cases. You know, when you gave the example, teacher being told that next year, you know, there will be such a child in your class, what should they do? I think talking to the parents would be absolutely the best thing they could do and talking in depth mm -hmm. about what the parents really think is going on, what has worked for them and what they were, what they're hoping for. And do you think in most, I mean, what's the sort of, the, you know, it's, it's an almost impossible question because as we've been talking about, this is a spectrum, but what percentage of people who are diagnosed with autism should, should do you think should be going into the special school sector or the mainstream sector? I mean, are we dealing, are mainstream teachers dealing with a very small proportion of, of the people with autism? Are the, are the majority in the special school sector currently? Or, you know, is it roughly 50-50? Where do you think we are at that? Well, the thing about mainstream or special education schooling or being in a unit in a mainstream school, you know, there are many, many different options. It, the, the thing about it is that it might change over a child's life. Mm. And they might thrive in a mainstream school for a year or two, and then not anymore. Um, then special education is far better for them. So um, most of the time, um, my respect for, for you know, a, a special education setting is absolutely high. 
I, I just think that they're doing such a marvellous job, while in mainstream, um, maybe there are there are going to be problems. I mean, for example, there are always these problems of bullying that seem to be very, very hard to um, fight against, to eradicate. And all parents want their children to be protected from that. Mm. So that that is a that is a kind of consideration. But I did want to say one other thing. Um, some children with special needs, and especially those who have this brain abnormality that makes them intellectually disabled, will need a very, very long time to learn. They are slow at mm. learning, but they will learn. Now, you know, they have such a different pace, they have such a different way of attending, and, and it's very difficult to get their attention to the right thing. Now, to put them together with mainstream children doesn't seem to be quite such an effective thing to do. I think more time is needed for them, and this is an, an argument that I certainly would agree with, that their, their school time needs to be longer than the school time for other children. They can go on and on learning, and in fact, people have argued that lifelong learning is what really goes on in autism. Hmm, interesting. And do you think, the final question then I guess is, is the, it goes back to the original question, is that the, are we a, uh, an autistic aware society and, and as a consequence an autistic aware education system? Is this tendency now to sort of say, oh, I'm a bit autistic or he's a bit on the spectrum, this almost casual diagnosis of individuals because of certain traits they think are prominent within autistic children, for example, you know, a little bit awkward socially or a little bit very yeah, strict yeah, on their yeah, routines. That, that is, 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 is definitely the case that we, we, we sort of have a feeling of what this means to be a bit on the spectrum. Mm. Um, I, it, it gives us a sort of inkling of what it must be like to be autistic, but it doesn't give us the experience of being autistic. I think there is a world of difference between, um, you know, friends and acquaintances that we have and we say, yeah, yeah, definitely a bit on the spectrum. <laughs> and people who, you know, have that condition which has, in fact, um, affected their lives in, in very severe ways and not only their own lives, but their lives, their families and, and others. So we, we should possibly be a lot more aware of making comments like that. I mean, I know from since being working in, in this sector that I'm incredibly aware of, 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 of that sort of phrase now and slightly awkward about it, but I, I'm interested in whether actually that's part of society's way of, of becoming familiar with it or, or whether yeah, it is offensive. Yeah, that is an interesting idea. I, I think you're right. There is, a, there is a bit of a way of, of making light of it also or, you know, sort of not, not quite facing the um, you know the demands that actually would be made that are being made on society, we're not necessarily really stepping up to this because it sort of looks like okay you know maybe most people can be a little bit autistic and maybe that's not a bad thing and so you know what's all the fuss about? Um, well, some people might think that that's all that's needed to kind of normalise all the people on the autistic spectrum and we should you know thereby it should disappear but of course that is absolutely not the case mm -hmm. and are you hopeful for the future do you think 
the research is getting the you know people like yourself are getting the funding and you're getting the time to research this properly is there enough interest uh, are we still progressing is it, is this a continuum or, or is this a research autism research leveling out where do you think we sort of are in our progression i, I think it's it's really remarkable how many researchers are uh, attracted to work in autism and and on and all levels you know from from the genetic level to to the educational level i mean and everything in between so yes there, there is funding available there, a lot of the funding comes from um charities from parents organizations so on but the research councils um fund projects I mean, the medical research council founded me all my life so I'm very grateful for that, and I, I think um, everybody in who really does the research knows that there are so many open questions that we must carry on. Mm. And indeed, by carrying on, by researching autism, uh, you know, the behavior, the brain, the genes, the underlying um, cognitive mechanisms, I think that's the way that we will actually find out more about ourselves. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, pleasure.